This week we're starting a new sermon series, and I'm excited because I love the book of Exodus. Um, <clears throat> and we'll be in the book of Exodus at least through the summer. Um, I think we'll get through the first 15 chapters. Um, don't hold me to that because it never plans never work out the way they're supposed to. But we should be about for chapter, well, we'll say chapter 12. I'll hedge my bets um, by the time we get to the summer. But I'm very excited, um, the book of Exodus. And this morning we'll be looking at the first five um, verses, and we'll be talking, this will be kind of like an intro sermon to the book of Exodus, um, to prepare us to hear God speak through Exodus for the next few months. So with that said, uh, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, or if you have your bulletin, it's for you, uh, printed there. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, this is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Let's pray. Father, we read these verses and it just feels like a list of names. But we know in this list of names that it is packed promise and significance that will be un, uh, unwrapped for us as we look at your word in Exodus in the coming months. So this morning, Lord, move. Point us toward you and not toward just a list of names. Show us you um, that we might love you all the more. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you step back and think about it, as I just said, I read these five verses and it's about some people we've never met who lived about 4,000 years ago. The only actual connection we have in here is Asher, Tyndall, and we just read Asher, and so there you go. But it's not talking about him. This is a guy 4,000 years ago, your name is Asher. Um, but this is the first sermon in the sermon series, and we're going to be reading a book written by mostly by Moses um, about 400 years after this list of people by their great-great, however many great-grandchildren. And so we may wonder why. We're going to spend a big chunk of 2022 listening to it, preaching from it. And we may wonder why, beyond our church, why Exodus as a book and as a story has won such a big place in the imaginations of people for thousands of years. Why do we have what might feel like this random book for thousands of years ago in our Bibles? Is it because it's an impactful story? Well, yeah, it's an impactful story. Book of Exodus and what it tells about is one of the most impactful stories in human history. It's proven itself time and time again across a wide range of cultural worlds. Exodus has loomed especially large in the imaginations of people experiencing oppression. There's a big reason that Exodus was one of the books that slave owners in the American South before the Civil War would keep their slaves from reading. It was one of the books that was cut out of the Bibles that masters would give to slaves. Now, of course, God's word would not be bound. So the story of the God who hates oppression, the story of God who frees his people, was one that made its way into the hearts of those who found themselves and their fam families in chains, longing to be free. So there's a reason why, uh, that for our U.S. history, Harriet Tubman, the great figure of the Underground Railroad, was known, one of her nicknames was Black Moses. There's a reason why the songs that sprang from these people longing for freedom heavily featured themes and concepts from the book of Exodus. 
Go down, O Moses, let my people go. So yes, it's historically impactful. But that's not it. There's lots of impactful stories, right? We're not going to preach through Homer's The Iliad and The Odyssey, thank God. Or Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Those are historically significant. So that's not it. Is it because it's a compelling story? Well, yeah, it is a compelling story if you've ever read through Exodus. There's a reason why it keeps being remade in Hollywood. Why we got Prince of Egypt. Why we got the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Exodus reads like this masterpiece drama. There's ups and downs. There's intrigues. There's good. There's evil. It feels like a movie. But that's not it. We're not going to watch uh, the Shawshank Redemption and talk about literary symbolism in the church necessarily. You might come to my house and do that. No, we're not going to read it. And we're not spending time in it just because it's compelling. We're going to read from this book because it's the story not of Moses. Because Moses is a major feature or a major, major, major figure. We're reading this because it's part of God's story. The story of his redemption. Not only that, Exodus is a book inspired by him. It's God's word. That's what we mean. His communication about who he is and what he's up to. Exodus, like all the Bible, is given to us to tell us that God is not out there far off, but he's a God who hears, who sees, who promises, who keeps those promises. He's a God who doesn't have to, but because of his grace, enters into our world so that sin and violence, oppression and death will not have the final word about us, but he will. So, we're reading through Exodus. We're going to hear from it because it's God's word. And because it's God's story, not just because it's compelling, not just because it's impactful. So as we go over this book for the next few months, know that it's not just some interesting story or some cultural artifact, but this is God's word about his work. And the book of Exodus is, in a sense, the beginning of him keeping his promises to destroy the power of sin, a promise ultimately fulfilled in Jesus for us. And that brings me to my first section, I'm calling this first section, And... So let's talk about this book a little bit. This is uh, that it, it, ancient Hebrew. It's a little bit different than uh, what you would hear spoken by modern day Hebrew speakers, but it was written in Hebrew. And the first sentence of this book that's printed for us, right, in our English translation right here, these are the names of the sons of Israel. That's not actually the first word. These is not the first word in this book. The first word in the book of Exodus is and. And it starts uh, to the horror of English teachers everywhere. And. And these are the names of. Now I wish the English translators would include this because I think it points to something that we can miss. Exodus is not a standalone book, it's a sequel in a sense. Now we know that not just because it starts with and, but because this first sentence. And these are the names of the sons of Israel. It's an exact quote of Genesis 46, chapter 46, verse 8. Exodus begins by quoting Genesis. Picking up the Bible and starting in the book of Exodus is like beginning to watch the Marvel movies by starting with the Avengers. You, you miss a, a lot of build-up. Now, you can start with the Avengers, and you're going to figure out what's going on, like the big green guys of the Hulk. Okay, guy with the hammer, that's Thor. Like, you pick it up pretty quickly, you got it, but there's a lot of background that's happened already. Or to put it a different way, let's, let's, let's talk it like a baseball game. It's like starting to watch a baseball game in the second inning when the score is one-to-one with four hits in an error. Like, you, you, there's a lot of game to go, 
but you've already missed, missed a bunch of action to explain how we got there. So what's already happened? When we start Exodus, what is already happened? In Genesis, we find a God who created all things and created all things good and made humanity in His image meant to reflect Him and His beauty and His goodness into this world. We also see the entrance of sin into this world through humanity. That humanity rebelled and plunged the world into frustration and sin. But God's response to sin wasn't just judgment. It wasn't only judgment. God's response was promise. Right there, in the immediate aftermath of Adam and Eve's rebellion, God promises that through the seed, through the descendant of Eve, he was going to destroy the work of Satan. That he was going to destroy the power of sin. And in the face of growing violence and darkness, God called a man named Abraham, Genesis 12, telling him that he was going to establish him, that he was going to make his name great. And through Abraham and his descendants, he was going to bless every family on the face of the earth. That's what God did in the face of sin and violence. He called a man named Abraham. And he said, I'm going to keep that promise I made to Eve to destroy the power of sin. And God continued to reiterate that promise in Genesis. To Abraham, yes, and to his son Isaac, and to his grandson Jacob. And the book of Genesis ends with Jacob and his twelve sons in Egypt. Fleeing a famine, and Jacob's son Joseph rising to the heights of political power by proving himself an able administrator, helping the people weather the storm of a severe famine. So that, you know, that's a great story. It ends and it looks like Joseph's been established as this big figure in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. But it ends incompletely. It ends with the promise unfulfilled. If you're just reading Genesis and you get to the end of the chapter 50, you're, waiting, you're thinking, wait, what? That's it? God said he's going to bless every family on, the, on, on earth through Abraham and Joseph helped save some grain for seven years to stop a famine from That's it? That's the fulfillment of it? That's kind of what we get. But what we see in Genesis is what does God do when his creation is plunged into frustration, when his image sins against him? Not just past judgment, he promises to redeem and he fulfills those promises. Genesis answers, who is God? That God's not just an abstract thing. As I said earlier, he's not God out there. He's God who takes an interest in and in a sense breaks into our world with his cycles of frustration and violence and sin. And he does this by tying himself to Abraham and his family. Genesis is the account of God making the promise that sin will not have the final. But as I said, Genesis ends with that promise unfulfilled. It ends with Jacob and his family in Egypt, in a good place to be sure. But the promises that God makes to Abraham are not fulfilled in Genesis. We end with a to be continued, which is why Exodus starts with end. Which brings me to my next section. What's in a name? What is in a name? Or what's in a title? Books in the ancient world really didn't have titles. So if you wrote a book, you wouldn't sit down and say, okay, what am I going to call this? Um, they usually either be called by the first words of the book, so the first sentence was whatever it was going to be called, or some writers uh, talking about the book would begin calling it something and other people would catch on and start doing that. So for some in the ancient world, this book was known as Names, or the, and these are the book of Names. 
taken from the first sentence. And that's a good name. That's a good title of a book, Names. Like we've already said, this story picks up in the middle, and so it begins with a list of names of people in the family of Abraham. God has made his promises, and he's kept Abraham's family. And verse 1 tells us where we are. Abraham and his fam- or Abraham's family is in Egypt, and the promise is not yet fulfilled. But here's the names of the sons of Israel. Here's the inheritors of the promise, in a sense. Exodus begins with a family of 70 people, and it ends with an entire nation of people at Mount Sinai. Names. But the other name that this book got over time was the one that we use in our English Bibles today, Exodus. In Hebrew, it was literally the book of the departure. That's what Exodus meant. Speaking of God rescuing his people from Egyptian slavery, and as the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, it was called Exodus. Ex means out, and odos means road, the way out, the road or path out. And this highlights a key theme for Exodus, a key point in what was going on. The promise of God seemed to be, as I said, gone. Or at best, irrelevant. If anything, the darkness has squashed the light and the oblivion. It's been 400 years since anybody's been talking about promises made to Abraham. The people are just another nation in Egypt, which was the biggest uh, empire in the world at the time. It was a multicultural, in a sense, kind of place. And lots of people landed there. There were lots of different people. and Israelites were just one of them. But the book opens on this darkness to show us that all is not lost. In fact, in the first two chapters, which we're going to talk about more in the coming weeks, we see how the promises of God continue in unexpected ways. How the community of God's people are sustained by God using the actions of unexpected people. In fact, the first two chapters of Genesis features and highlights five unlikely women through whom the promise of God and his people is continued. But we'll get to that. So that's the name, Exodus, the way out. But not just any way out. It's not a generic way out. A way out created by God. A road that He paves in this world. The image of the book of Exodus is this. This way was paved by God. And that idea, a way, a pathway made by God for His people to travel down, is one that the Bible comes to time and time again. That into the mess of our world, God enters to redeem his people and lead them out of their futility and into freedom. It's referred to over and over again in the Old Testament. It's picked up in the New Testament. It's talked Jesus, The work of Jesus is talked about in this way. God enters into the frustration of his people to pave a way out to bring them to freedom. What does God do in our world? He does exodus. He hears the cries of his people. He condescends in his grace and he leads them out of bondage. To put it another way, we've already talked about the promises of God to Abraham that through his family all nations will be blessed. Well, Exodus gives us a little more flesh on the bone of that promise. A little expansion of what's going on there. That the way all families of the earth on earth will be blessed is not, it's not just a generic blessing like the family of Abraham becomes an ATM that people can come to and get blessed. The blessing will come in this way. God will act in the face of sin and oppression to judge it. So he will be just. And justice will be done on earth. And to free humanity from its bondage. That's what blessing will look like. God working through the family of Abraham to bring freedom. 
And that brings us to our next session, the family. Our verses are a list of names, and we won't go through them all. I guess I could list them and tell you what they all mean, um, but we won't do that. But I want to point something out about it. Throughout much of history, if you read back, there's a lot made out of uh, pure lines, especially if, especially if you're talking about inheritance. Um, uh, think about the, the drama, if you know history, of King Henry VIII. He was trying to have an heir to the throne in the Tudor dynasty, and he could not have a son. He kept failing to have a son, and so he literally broke off from the Catholic Church. and just historical chaos, but it was all around the idea of, I've got to have a son to pass the line down to. I've got to have a pure line, a queen and a son. The line is passed down in specific ways. So with that in mind, and that's not just you know, English history from the 1500s. Throughout history, there's a lot made about the idea of pure lines to pass down inheritance. With that in mind, this list, from a standpoint of those expectations, is a bit of a mess. Again, if you read Genesis, you'll find this. This is 12 different sons by four different women. Twelve different sons from four different women. It's the broken family of broken families. This is like daytime TV drama, Mari Povich family, listed here in Exodus 1. One of these sons was disinherited because they sinned against their father in a huge way. It's in Genesis. Ten of these sons were implicated in selling another one of their brothers into slavery. This family is chaos. So know that Exodus, as we're starting it here, is not just a story of heroes, at least not the way we would think. If I was writing down my family history, I would cover up some of these things. I would not include them for people to read later on. I know if it was my story about my family, I would not want people reading this for thousands of years. But here's their story, warts and all. Now the book of Exodus was written mostly by Moses. And if you read through Exodus, Moses is the main human character, but he doesn't come off in a great light either. In the second chapter, we see some pretty heroic actions by his mom and by his sister, so there are some heroes in a sense, I, could, I guess we could say. But the Moses we meet is one who's called by God and assured by God, and God says, I'm going to be with you, and it's going to be great. And Moses is like, well, I don't think people will listen to me. Even with you with me. I, I stammer, I can't do it. It's a hesitant Moses. This family is a mess. But of course it's not all bad. Like any broken family, there's glimpses of beauty and glory. At the end of Genesis, there's this profound reconciliation that happens in this family, if you've ever read the story of Joseph. And from the beginning, as odd as this may sound, Israel, this family even though it was a family, it was, uh, in a sense, a multi-ethnic community of people. And that's a beautiful thing. These sons married women of other nationalities. Moses, who we meet here, he marries an Ethiopian woman. The group of people who were led out of Egypt and freed from slavery weren't just ethnic Jews. They were people from other nations, too, that had been enslaved and had placed their faith in God, and they went with them. Or to put it another way, it was never about God just picking an ethnic group. That wasn't the point of him saying, okay, I choose Abraham and Abraham's family. It wasn't him saying, this is the best family on earth, yay, I'm going through them. It was never about that. Yes, he worked through the family of Abraham, but it's clear from absolutely the very beginning of God calling them that the family of Abraham wasn't just about blood running through their veins. 
That's the point that Paul makes in Galatians 3, which we read in our assurance of pardon, right? Understand then, as he said, that those who have faith are children of Abraham. That's a point embedded in the Old Testament too. You know, I remember years ago, I was having a conversation with a woman uh, from Eastern North Carolina. She was Lumbee Indian background. She hadn't grown up in church, but you know, you can't grow up in Eastern North Carolina and not be around a church on every corner. And she was 19 or 20, and I was about the same age. And I remember she asked me, we were talking, and she said, wait, Jesus wasn't white? And Christianity isn't just for white people? In her experience... There in Robeson County, and the way she processed it, Jesus was a white guy who lived for white people. You know, I don't blame her for misinterpreting it. If you don't know, the history of Christianity here in America is one that's been impli- that has implicitly said that over and over again. The reality of the historical black church is because black people were not allowed in white churches. I make that point because what I'm saying about this family is that it shows us that from the very beginning, God had an open door. That yes, he was dealing with the family of Abraham, but it wasn't him saying, this is the pure bloodline that I'm picking, and these are the best people, and if you're not them, then tough luck. No, what God is doing, embedded from the beginning, is gathering a community of people that are defined by faith in him, first and foremost. Here in Exodus, is a family of people whose ties as I said, is that God calls them. And that leads me to my final section, our Exodus. Our Exodus. I've already mentioned that this concept of Exodus is a central one in the Bible, but not just in a sense that it's referred to as an historical action to know about. It's not just that Exodus is included here like kids learning American history learn about the Boston Tea Party, or kids taking North Carolina history get obsessed with the lost colony of Roanoke for a couple years. It's not just like, here's a cool story you should know from our history. Because when it comes to Exodus, we aren't just talking about people we might have some kind of tie with or even talking about key historical figures. As I said at the beginning, we're talking about God. And the God who acted then is the very same God that we are worshiping this morning. That very same God is our God. And so when we read about these people, In Exodus, we aren't just reading about some people, we're reading about our ancestors and the faith. And the tie that binds us together isn't just blood or some ethnic line or a genealogy. The tie that binds us together is God. 4,000 years ago, God acted in human history to free this family that had grown to become a people. They were trapped in bondage. And he worked decisively to judge the Egypt and the Pharaoh that would work with their false power to oppress and condemn. And he freed them. He acted for them in compassion and he acted them for them in keeping with his promise to their ancestor. A promise that he had first made in the face of human rebellion in Adam and Eve to destroy the power of sin. A promise that he had kept when he told Abraham and Sarah that through their descendant he would bless every family on earth. And here, 400 years after he had made that promise to Abraham, he arrives into the darkness of Egyptian slavery to free these people from bondage. And that story continues through the Old Testament. God establishes not only a people, but a kingdom. And over that kingdom, he sets his king, David. 
But he tells David, you are not it. You are not it. There is a descendant coming from you. A king who will establish this kingdom in true righteousness and true peace. This will be a kingdom not defined by political maneuvers, not defined by arms and war, but it will be a kingdom where my grace is the defining feature. My kingdom where the humble are lifted up, where the prideful are cast down, but the prideful are cast down to be lifted up. A kingdom where the power of sin will be overthrown. This is the story that weaves through the Old Testament. And that though history, even after that, took a dark turn, God worked a thousand years after making that promise to David to send his son. And in the coming of Jesus is the arrival of this kingdom. That's why the first thing that the Gospel of Mark has us hearing from the words of Jesus to repent, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus who arrived as one who would bring true exodus, true freedom, a full freedom from bondage, not just a sense of freedom, not just a political freedom that would just last a generation or two, but freedom from the power of sin. Freedom, uh, the book of Hebrews says, freedom from the fear of death and the power of Satan. Jesus, who in his life overcame temptation and did not give in to sin. Jesus, who in his life became one of us, breaking the power of sin by not giving in to Jesus, who in his death faced the judgment against sin so that we don't have to, a human being facing the injustice of this world and the wrath of God. Jesus, who in his resurrection was vindicated by God and broke the power of death and the power of Satan forever, who in turn gives us freedom, who gives us forgiveness, who sets us free from our bondage and our slavery to sin by grace, not by works, never by works, so that he leads us in our exodus, leading us out of a bondage that we cannot break into the shining light of his love for us, which is our promised land never to be taken away. So guys, as we hear from the book of Exodus in the next few months, let's keep all of that in mind. That it's not just a cool story, even though it is. That it's not just a story about Moses or even the children of Israel. That as we read Exodus, we're reading about our God, and thus we're reading about our story. And may we see here the God who's not indifferent to pain or injustice, never. Who's not indifferent to our sin and the sins against us. Who's not indifferent to the chains that hold us bound. But our God, this God, who steps into history, into our history to change its course. Who walks into our dead end street to pave a road 